What I wanted to do tonight is talk about the veil, because that aspect of this talk really spoke to me in terms of what the veil is and isn't. Um, so I'm going to be talking tonight about that and contextualizing, hopefully, my colleagues' later talks on radicalization. So the hijab has become a political statement in light of the rise of Islamophobia in the West. My view is that the West has an unhealthy obsession with the hijab, and I hope that what I have to say here today will help put it into perspective. Debate on the hijab remains fraught, both within Islam as well as outside of it. It is a complex issue because politics, religion, society, and culture all play a role in the many reasons why women choose to wear it. My background is that I've spent the best part of the last five years studying Arabic, as well as living and traveling in the Middle East, and I've been researching the Middle East for the last seven years. I was married to a Lebanese Muslim for two years, and that gave me a particular insight into the cultural norms of Islamic society in Lebanon. My travels across the Middle East included five months spent learning Arabic at the Islamic Madrasa Abu Nur in Damascus. So in my presentation today, I want to discuss the various encounters I have had with women in the Middle East and their relationship with the veil. Tonight, I want to help to demystify the veil by discussing how and why it is worn in the context of Muslim societies. So I will first discuss the reasons why Middle Eastern women wear the hijab, and then I will go on to talk about the culture of the hijab in terms of how it is worn in different parts of the Middle East. My experiences of the Middle East taught me that the veil can be worn for myriad reasons. It can be, and in my mind should be, a woman's own choice. Where a woman cho chooses to wear it, she does so largely for any or all of these three main reasons that I identified. Religious duty, religious choice, or feminism. Religious duty. Islamic religious writings are not entirely clear on the question of women veiling. Various statements in the Quran and the Hadith, statements attributed to the Prophet Muhammad, make reference to Muhammad's wife's veiling, but it's debatable whether these statements apply only to the Prophet's wives or to all Muslim women. It should be noted that while the need for women to be modest is mentioned, Muslim men are also urged to be modest and to cover themselves between the waist and the knees. Interestingly, there is a term from Islam that is said to come from both the Bible, from the Bible and the Quran that refers to hijab of the eyes, which applies to both men and women. It refers to being modest and not looking at a member of the opposite sex with lust. If we leave aside the hadiths, which, which can be debated, there is some reference to veiling in the Quran. Specifically, it comes down to the word khumur, which is the plural of the word khimar, which means a veil or a scarf which covers the head. In chapter 24, in a surah called An-Nur, meaning the light, the Lord commanded the prophet that women should cover their bosoms with their khumur. The history behind the reference to the décolletage and not the head is because many women covered their heads in pre-Islamic times but did not cover their neck. So some Muslims interpret this command as God telling Muslim women to distinguish themselves from other women by covering their neck as well as their head. However, whether a woman decides to view this command as a timeless one, for example, like the pillars of Islam, or a contextual one born of times where all women wore a head covering, is a matter for her own interpretation. So for some women, the wearing of the hijab is due to the fact she believes this command is timeless and it is a duty upon her as a Muslim woman to wear it. Religious choice. Some women may or may not regard wearing hijab as a religious duty. 
but they choose to wear it to remind them of their faith and to set an example of what it is to be a good Muslimah. The idea here is, yes, you are differentiating yourself as a Muslim, but not for political reasons, but instead religious ones. By identifying as a Muslim and acting according to the principles of Islam, it is hoped you will show others the good in Islam. Furthermore, staying veiled makes you feel closer to your religion. For example, women cover their heads to pray in Islam, so, reminding, so remaining covered outside of prayer also helps remind you of your devotion. The feminist reason. Finally, wearing the hijab is born of the idea that a woman does not need to be seen for her beauty, but instead for her achievements in life. In modern Western society, statistics have shown that a woman is still viewed very much on her appearance. She's more likely to get a job if she's attractive, not overweight, and so forth. So some women will cite this reason as a motivation to wear hijab, a rejection of being judged purely on their looks. A counter-argument, of course, that is made by Muslims as well as non-Muslims is that by covering her hair, a woman is drawing more attention to her sexuality. But ultimately, I think this particular debate comes down to different versions of feminism between East and the West. A feminist in the Middle East who wears a hijab might believe that men will always be lustful, and therefore it's better to keep them at bay with the hijab. In Western feminism, it's generally the idea that men should know better, and that a woman should not have to adjust her clothing to account for male sexualization of her, because they simply need to be taught not to do it. Now, that is not to say that women in the Middle East are not always expected to maintain a traditional role in the home, because in my experience, more often than not, in the places that I visited, many of them were. But that is a different issue to that of the hijab. Islam has very strong female role models, so Islam should not be blamed for the very failings of our society. The paternalization or misogynization of some societies has to be viewed as a human failing and not one created by Islam. So if a woman chooses to wear the hijab, this should not automatically be conflated with other demands made of her in the home that we in the West might sometimes consider outdated or sexist. So now I want to talk about the culture of the hijab in the Middle East and tap into the social and cultural norms that also play a role in why women wear the hijab. There's no doubt that the more conservative societies in the Middle East do not always give women a choice as to what they wear. A woman's brother or father may instruct her to cover. Once the woman is married, her husband may insist upon it or he may not. It depends on the person. But in my opinion, this is often how the West views all women who wear the veil, that they have no agency and must have been forced into it, which is simply not the case. There are other reasons. My former mother-in-law, as a young woman in South Lebanon, wore a knee-length skirt and a headscarf, the kind Western women might wear in the fields. That is until her husband died, and then she chose to cover after that. I lived for six months in Dahia, the Shiite suburb south of Beirut, which are often called a Hezbollah heartland or Hezbollah stronghold. In fact, Dahia is just a lower socioeconomic area of Lebanon that for historical reasons of migration is dominated by the Shia. It's a place full of hardworking families and not the militarized boot camp the designation Hezbollah stronghold would suggest. The reason I mention this is that as an area designated to be religious, um, the attire of the women in Dahia varied enormously. Between half to two-thirds of women covered. But of those who did, some water chose to wear the chador as a sign of their piety. The chador is an Iranian import which should not be confused with the niqab. The chador covers the head and most of the body, but never the face. In fact, Shiite women do not, as a rule, cover their faces. There is no doubt that many of the women who wore the chador in Dahia did so because they were devout, 
and also possibly affiliated by marriage or family with Hezbollah, who follow the Iranian model of Twelver Shiism and believe in what is called the Velia Ifari in Persian or Wiliat Ifaqi in Arabic. That is not a given, but it can be an indicator. Plenty of devout women, like my mother's and, and mother and sister-in-law, wear a hijab and an abaya and have nothing to do with Hezbollah and may not support them. However, to an outsider looking in, it might be hard to tell the subtle difference between the political affiliation and just being covered. At the other end of the spectrum were young women who chose to wear the hijab as a fashion item. This phenomenon is well known in the Middle East and the older generation tend to scoff at it. The fashion hijab wearer, I saw this in Syria and in Jordan as well, will tend to wear a brightly colored hijab in the Egyptian style. Now, the highly fashionable will also wear what is known as the camel hump. And this is a cup placed under the hijab in order to make the woman look as though she has very long hair which she has bound up. Naturally, this kind of contradicts the idea of the hijab which was designed to hide a woman's attributes and not exacerbate them. In general, women who wear the hijab in this style often accompany it with quite tight clothing. It will be modest, sure, they will cover their arms and legs and neck, but the shape of their body will be clearly visible. They're usually also quite heavily made up with painted nails and so forth. Women dressed in this style in the Middle East are usually seen as not necessarily being devout, but rather more interested in being fashionable within an Islamic cultural framework. It's worth noting here that a great many of these women are under no pressure to wear the veil. It's quite common to see such women walking with their mothers in the street, and their mothers are not covered. It has become, in some Muslim areas, a fashion statement and not a religious marker. Now, in Iran, however, where the veil is enforced, we encounter a different scenario. Here, women must cover their hair, their colletage, legs, and arms. So what you find in young women in Iran doing, in contrast, is wearing their hijab very far back on their head and combing their hair into a very high start with lots of makeup. This is more of a North Tehrani or liberal political statement that indicates that the woman has no interest in the Islamic nature of the Iranian state and resents being forced to wear the hijab. The older generation, who are not religious, also tend to wear the hijab lightly, in that they drape the veil over their head, but do not wear a chador or good hijab, whereby the hair is hidden completely. In North Yemen, in contrast, the cultural norm is to wear the niqab. And you rarely see a woman in Sana'a and other areas it's surrounding not dressed this way. North Yemen is not the only place the niqab is worn, of course, and I will discuss that later. My point is that the cultural dress in Sana'a and the Northern, this is a cultural dress and not necessarily a religious dress. And this is why some women who emigrate to Western states feel unable to uncover their face because it's not so much something they feel has been imposed on them so much as the natural order of things and the way that they dress. So it makes them feel very uncomfortable to actually uncover their face in, the Western, in Western society. I should note that women in Yemen complain of as much and did to me as much sexual harassment as uncovered women in the Middle East. There's really no difference. It does not protect you from that. I recall a Niqabi woman coming into one of my classes at the Islamic Madrasa in tears, where I studied in Syria, because a man had grabbed parts of her anatomy as she walked through the park on her way to school. In the Middle East, it's possible to know which country someone comes from, depending on how they wear the hijab, and even sometimes whether they are Sunni or Shia. As I've already mentioned, a Shiite woman will generally not cover her face. Devout Shia women in Lebanon who reject the chador as, as an Iranian import tend to wear a muted floral scarf pinned under their chin. 
I must tell you, I was unable to find a good photo on the internet that was suitable of, of this, because every picture of Shiite woman was of them wailing and crying. There's some really awful photos, and Ashura, and all the sensationalizing of, of Shiism. So it's quite disturbing to see that this is how Shiite women are portrayed in the media, that I found it very hard to find a, a decent photo of this. So other styles that will tell you where a woman are from are as follows. As I've mentioned, the Egyptian style, which is most common to the West, pinned to one side. And then the Turkish style tends to be brightly colored, tied tightly at the neck. And similar to the Malay style, if you notice the front of the hijab, it's sort of a, a Malay and Indonesian, sorry. It's sort of a slightly, sort of more, sort of visor look you tend to find in the Malay and Indonesian as well, although it's, it manifests itself differently. A lot of Turkish women will actually put uh, a little bit of plastic into the front of that headscarf to give it that nice crisp um, shape. So conservative Syrian women don't tend to, in general, wear the uh, uh, niqab. They tend to wear um, a different set of garments. Um, so they wear the hijab, um, sort of similar to the Turkish style. Um, but they match it with a dark raincoat. And you can see just behind those two women, an extremely devout Sunni woman in Syria might also wear a black veil over her face with gloves and the raincoat. The niqab and burqa, however, are never worn by Shia women and are very much a Sunni article of clothing. The niqab is more of a Gulf states garment, and hence you'll see women in the Gulf states and a few conservative Sunni neighborhoods across the Middle East wearing the niqab. But it's much rarer in the western side of the Mashrek, known as the Levant in Syria, Palestine, Lebanon. Now, it has been increasing a little bit, but it's still much less, um, much less common. And the burqa is unique to Afghanistan and has spread to some of the tribal areas of Pakistan, but it is not uh, something that you find in the Middle East, in the Arab part of the Middle East. Of course, there's nothing that I'm aware of in the Quran that enjoins women to cover their faces, per se, which is why the niqab and burqa remain highly contentious within Islam, as well as in Western society. It's a difficult issue in light of current Western security concerns because it does make it easier for people to hide their identity. There is no doubt that the wearing of the hijab has increased in the Middle East in recent years, and largely for political reasons. For example, in Turkey, as the secular nature of the state is being rolled back, we find a new middle-class woman who embraces the veil. Anecdotally, an Egyptian Sunni friend of mine chooses not to cover, but she told me during the revolution, Muslims would call out to her to tell her they would protect her as an Egyptian Christian. So in Egypt, too, we find the hijab in some societies has become a symbol of Islam. What I want to stress here is that I also know plenty of devout women who choose not to wear the hijab. Women who pray regularly, they don't drink, they perform Ramadan and all their, uh, the rites of Islam. In the Middle East, it is not a key indicator of how religious you are, or indeed anywhere. In addition, I have come across the reverse, women who have chosen to abandon the hijab because they were wearing it for socio-cultural reasons. I met a lot of those women in Lebanon. Equally, I've met women in Australia who have taken it off and then chosen to wear it again years later. It is ultimately about what makes you feel comfortable, and a woman should be free to make this very personal choice. So in sum, I would like to stress the following. The hijab can be empowering to women if they choose to wear it, and it is not for us in the West or fellow Muslims to condemn a woman who believes she's required to wear it by God, or for any other reason. The political reasons behind the increased wearing of the hijab in the Middle East, I would say, are related to the spread of conservative forms of Islam in Turkey, coming out from Saudi Arabia and Iran. 
The hijab can be as benign as a fashion statement or for family and cultural reasons and have nothing to do with politics and religion. I think there's a real danger in conflating the hijab with extremism for reasons that should be obvious. I maintain that my experience with women who wear the hijab is that even when it is to make a statement about their religion, this has nothing to do with extremism. I do not believe it is a precursor to radicalization. In the vast majority of cases, it is worn for the many reasons I have spoken about here today. But the question is, and this is the focus of my talk tonight, I would like to answer or ask this question. Why do women join jihadi groups? And particularly, why ISIS? So hopefully, we'll be able to find some answers tonight. What are the motivating factors? It is difficult to comprehend why women would leave their families to join a subversive group like ISIS. Often media outlets refer to these women as jihadi bride, um, jihadi brides brainwashed, or groomed, or probably even violent in nature. And the inability to understand this phenomenon leaves us with inadequate policies, policies that fail to address the problem. It must be noted that although women play you know, a different role you know, from men in these groups, their reasons for signing up are often the same. There are a number of intertwining factors uh, identified by analysts and also scholars, academics who work in the area, and one cannot commit to one definite answer as the issue remains complex. It is going to be impossible for me to discuss uh, them all, all of these issues, all the factors that would encourage women to join ISIS or jihadi groups for that matter. But we look at a few important issues that I think I would highlight tonight, probably two or three. I would use the phrase, the dark side to empowerment. It is indeed perplexing and surprising when we talk about empowerment as a factor. How can women who join a group that strips away their agency claim to be empowered? Many of these women, they struggle with identity crisis. Often they're socially isolated, also frustrated uh, by their social status. They are in search of who they are. They are in search of some sense of belonging as well. Against this backdrop, ISIS recruiters, both male and females, by the way, often through the internet, provide these women with moral and emotional support. Uh, we hear that they use women in various ways, in really quite horrific manners as well. However, they do provide moral and emotional support, provide group solidarity, making them feel important, making them feel that they are part of something larger than themselves. For example, some reports even suggest that women who express remote interest in ISIS online immediately receive 500 friend requests and also 500 Twitter followers. Basically, ISIS offers these women a shortcut to empowerment, if I can put it that way. What do I mean by this? When we look at what we have to go through to find space in society, there are so many hurdles, so many obstacles and stages to secure our position in society. We have to empower ourselves through education, employment, making contributions you know, making social contributions to society. ISIS provides a shortcut. All you need to do is join the group, immigrate to Syria and Iraq, 
kill the enemies of the caliphate, and you've probably made it. So this is indeed an interesting observation made by analysts. But again, it is empowering to some of these women. At least that's the rhetoric used to lure potential female and male jihadis. It is not actually different from right-wing groups as well. Um, it is about group solidarity and sense of empowerment. For example, if you look at the KKK, um, it's about coming together, chanting hateful slogans. They feel important because they're part of a larger movement, a big movement. Another factor that is often mentioned but not discussed in details, and that's something that I hope I'll be able to, to talk about a little bit tonight, is religious authenticity. Jihadi groups such as ISIS and Al-Qaeda offer a veneer of religious authenticity. They simplify Islam, which is a complex and also nuanced religion. They simplify Islam as black and white. They articulate their version of Islam, which denounces non-Muslims and Muslims who refuse to support them. We get denounced by ISIS as well. The narrative can be particularly appealing to those struggling with identity crisis. I'm a Muslim and nothing else. Often rejecting the fact that Muslims can actually assume multiple identities. So you can be a Muslim, but also French. You can be a Muslim, but also um, an Australian. So however, ISIS provides identity as black and white as well. And Islam is black and white. Reverts in particular, which I will explain, uh, relate to this kind of language. Who are reverts? Reverts are those who are born Muslim, who were not practicing, they were anything but Islamic, and suddenly felt compelled to reconnect with Islam. And one example is Hasna Bulahsin. She was involved in the Paris attacks. She was known among friends as an extrovert girl. Um, who liked partying, smoking, drinking, struggled with cultural and religious expectations as well. She reconnected with Islam, ISIS style, not long before the attacks. It is puzzling because some reverts seek to reconnect with Islam but don't join jihadi groups, at least don't join ISIS. However, it cannot be denied that ISIS provides what appears to be an easy road to salvation. Hasna was looking for salvation. ISIS gave her what appeared to be immediate salvation. And it can be quite appealing for someone who's struggling with identity crisis and looking to reconnect with religion. Often jihadis find the information about Islam online. ISIS recruiters in particular are internet savvy and are quick to establish contact. Again, many reports suggest that jihadis are not radicalized through mosques and community centers because they don't go to mosques and they don't establish relations with their community. Their indoctrination takes place online. The San Bernardino shootings, um, the husband and wife, for example, gradually isolated themselves and stopped attending prayers at the local mosque and disattach themselves from the community. This is because jihadis have no faith in mainstream Islam. To them, Muslim clerics today, they talk about Islam and they talk about petty issues. 
They talk about how to perfect your rituals or religious rituals. They talk about how to be a good wife, how to be a good mother, how to treat others. They don't deal with complex issues including Muslim identity, Muslim grievances, real or imagined, Muslim politics. And it must be noted that with the rise of ISIS, this is changing. Community leaders, Muslim clerics, you know, and female activists try to deal with some of these issues, even trying to talk to some women who are struggling with identity crisis. However, it must be noted that it is not easy to provide a counter-narrative that would appeal to radicalized youth, both women and men. Why? This is because the Muslim world suffers with the fragmentation of religious authority. And I know, I see some of my students, I repeat this all the time to them. Unlike Catholicism, Islam does not have a pope-like figure who speaks for its believers. Islam emphasizes personal devotion and personal relations with God, therefore allowing any individuals to interpret Islam. This has enabled jihadis to speak for Islam based on their own um, distorted understanding of Islam. Jihadi discourse describes mainstream Islam as watered down and too compromising. There are other reasons to explain you know, the female jihadi phenomenon. Many analysts have not ruled out the fact that these women, who are often very young, are also in search of romance, in search of adventure, there's so many reasons. As we know, the image of ISIS is, not, is far from flattering. The group's brutality and barbaric acts are widely circulated. The way ISIS treats women in particular is horrific. From the enslavement of Yazidi women to the massacre of women who refuse to marry jihadis, we wonder again why do some women support and pledge loyalty to ISIS? One explanation that may shed light on this perplexing issue is ISIS propaganda. Twitter and Facebook accounts of female jihadis indicate that they believe that ISIS is defamed by its enemies. It is a propaganda war against ISIS. So these female jihadis not only debunk accusations against ISIS, they provide a counter-narrative emphasizing Western brutality and indiscriminate killing of civilians. In fact, female jihadis write poems about American and Russian airstrikes killing civilians, posting pictures of dead women and children on Twitter and Facebook accounts. They exploit they grieve these grievances and highlight Western double standards to delegitimize anti-ISIS propaganda. And female jihadis? are at the forefront of this propaganda war as well. When we discuss women and extremism, so this is quite interesting, there's some hope. We often look at Muslim women as either victims or perpetrators. Policymakers and media outlets fail to acknowledge the role of women in countering violent extremism. Women have played a significant role in the fight against violent extremism, in, in the fight against ISIS, be it in Western countries, the Middle East, or Southeast Asia. Many risk their lives in doing so. Western media outlets focus on the Kurdish female fighters fighting against ISIS, who are very brave, obviously, and also very strong. You cannot deny that. 
but often portraying those who fight against ISIS as westernized and also non-hijabis. However, they are not the only faces fighting ISIS. I will leave you with this. In August 2014, Samira Saleh and Noaimi, a human rights lawyer from Mosul, was taken from her home after criticizing ISIS online. She condemned ISIS brutality. She was tortured for five days before being publicly executed. I can conclude. Women who fight violent extremism can be veiled and unveiled. My name's Amni and I'm a blogger at Unveiled Thought. Through my blog, I have had the privilege of hearing from all sides of the modern religious extremism debate, Muslims and non-Muslims, and people who are just worried about extremism, people who are impacted by and influencing this debate on a much broader spectrum. My plan this evening is really to talk to three points. The first thing I'll do is differentiate between extremism and conservatism. Then I'll highlight the importance of separating the struggle that these women are facing from their religious beliefs. And finally, I'll explain why the only viable solutions that we have in this space must come from self-determination. I intend on expanding this discussion beyond extremism in an Islamic context, but because I'm Muslim, I should preempt everything I say with the fact that I'm not a fan of the idea that Islam is a religion of peace. Islam, like any other religion, is a way of thinking, and it's completely open to interpretation. Interpretation, of course, is influenced by our surroundings. Reza Aslan summarized this in a much better way than I ever could, so I'm just going to borrow from him for a moment. He basically says it comes down to the way that we interpret words and ideals. So, we can look at Jesus as being the saviour. Now, if you are a white, middle-class American person, you will interpret saviour as someone being a peaceful pacifist. But a disenfranchised teen who has lived under the effects of, say, a Mexican drug cartel will see Jesus as a saviour or as a fighter and a martyr who would not be shaken. Both are really good interpretations of saviour, both are kind of incorrect, but both are the direct result of people that are injecting their own beliefs and vice versa. So everything I say tonight is completely down to my interpretation and context. Which leads me to point one. There is a difference between extremism and conservatism. Being religiously conservative means that a person's religious convictions will influence their ideas on broader social issues. Often this is restricting things that we would perceive as being progressive thinking. Religious conservatives will oppose abortion and homosexuality, drug use, sex outside of marriage, etc. And usually, although not ideal, people who are religiously conservative are harmless, unless, of course, they don't stay out of politics, because then we end up in a situation where 76% of a country are in favour of gay marriage, but government, ours, doesn't agree, and so nothing changes. <laughs> Religious extremism pushes things to the next level. It involves really forced interpretations of religion through the use of social or economic intolerance and violence. It results in really inflexible definitions of culture, identity, nationality. And this often results in women suffering at the hands of patriarchal societies. But only a small proportion of religious conservatives are extremists. But it's really interesting to see how this difference plays out in real life. Now, to help you see, I want you guys, after this, and after you've looked at my unveiledthought.com blog, um, I want you to Google religious conservatism, and then I want you to compare the results to religious extremism. Spoiler alert, religious extremism is completely linked to Muslims and only Muslims. So, let's have a look at tonight's panel. We're all either Muslims or experts in Islamic affairs. We've got a woman in a burqa and in a niqab. So if we let it, tonight's discussion can be just as imbalanced as the broader debate. 
So, I'm going to move things away from Islam for just a moment. Not as an act of defensiveness, but in, and in an exercise of understanding what we're dealing with here and the lessons that could be learnt. We're going to think of groups like the Westboro Baptist Church, who like to let us know that God hates homosexuals and Jewish people and Muslims and probably all of you, essentially everyone but them. <laughs> We also have the Lord's Resistance Army in Uganda who use rape and child enslavement to further their goal of Christian theocracies. In Tibet, we can look at Buddhists who are being subjected to brutal oppression. We can look at former Yugoslavia where three religious groups, the Muslims, Roman Catholics and the Orthodox, did a great job at killing each other. In fact, the Serbian Orthodox attacks on Muslims were bad enough that it was labelled as genocide. We can look at the southern Philippines where Muslim and Christian groups are completely destroying each other, of course blaming the other. We can look at Myanmar, where Muslim minorities are facing extreme oppression at the hands of Buddhists. 400,000 Muslims, that is half of the Muslim population there, has been expelled. And of course, let's not forget Gaza, a tiny strip that every so often is subjected to some heightened oppression. Which is why I think my second point is so important. The challenges that women face under these extremist societies are not purely the result of religious conviction or any other philosophy. There are actually many common factors that appear time and time again, and ignoring them means we're ignoring some really viable options. In situations of conflict and violence, women are often seen as the passive helpless victims. And as a result, women are neither considered to be potential extremists, nor perceived to be as dangerous as their counterparts. Forgetting about the whole woman scorned thing, but uh, we'll get back to that later. Women's participation in violent terrorism is actually increasing worldwide, like Dr. Ismail told us. Fragile and conflict-affected societies will often loosen their constraints on women to facilitate these extremist goals. Now, that would never happen in a conservative society. But over the last decade, we've seen women participating in 38 violent international disputes. Women participate in direct combat as perpetrators, commanders, suicide bombers, human shields, and take on support roles like domestic and sex slaves. Studies are showing us that the majority of female terrorists were actually more likely to have higher levels of education, they're less likely to be unemployed, and the scary thing is they're less likely to have had any prior activist connections at all. Female terrorists are also more likely to be widowed or divorced. So it seems that female motivation to commit really violent acts of terrorism are usually very individual. We have other studies showing us that the same issues that prompt men to join extremist societies will prompt women to do so also. Other factors include fear and anger over sexual violence, emancipation, and a desire to improve living conditions. Now, if we're seeing that sort of participation regardless of religious convictions, we have to ask ourselves what is actually going on here. We could just decide that religion is evil and argue that without religion, none of these violent acts would take place. But there have been far too many a-religious groups who've done pretty much the same thing. But when we look at groups like ISIS, it's clear that recent political transitions and instability have created a power vacuum that allow really highly organised extremist groups to spread their messages, often with funding from the West and wealthy individuals. And although the group is terrifying, unlike what we've seen in the past, it's actually women from the West who are making the dangerous journey to join them. Of course, we can wonder what on earth they're thinking as well, because why would they do that? Now when we're talking about women in extremist societies, we're no longer just talking about women born into them. We're talking about women actively making the choice to move over there and join these groups. The average age of a woman joining these fighters from the West is 22. Some join ISIS because they feel isolated or persecuted or they feel anger or sadness about perceived lack of international action against injustice. 
But extremist movements are offering them values, economic support and services, a sense of community that are really attractive to someone who's disenfranchised. Militarized and violent responses from outside uh, forces only solidify people's support for these movements. Now, there's an interesting paper on this issue that I think you should all read. It's called Becoming Mulan, and it's from the center of the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. And although most little girls grew up wanting to become Disney princesses, this paper is actually a terrifying read. It basically analyzes women who've left the comfort of the West to join ISIS. The number one consideration in their decision is to seek an alternative society and find somewhere where people will feel empathy towards Muslim victims of, of international conflicts. So they'll cite things like Bosnia and Syria, Myanmar and Mali. They're angry at the involvement of Western powers that perpetuate these conflicts. Many parents of these female migrants are horrified when they find out what their daughters have done. But interestingly, studies show that these girls just don't care. They share a sense of camaraderie and sisterhood with the sisters who join them, and they contrast that to the fake and surface level interactions that we have here in the West. As a result, these women can be manipulated into believing that it is their mandatory religious duty to assist in the building of an Islamic caliphate. And as a result, we have women trying to solve serious social issues through religious means. At the same time, women are directly and deliberately targeted by extremist movements in subtle and overt ways. Extremist forces are exerting stronger pressure to restrict women's legal rights and their participation in civil and political life. Women also end up experiencing far more physical uh, insecurity, sexual harassment and uh, public assault. Which leads me into point three, and why it's important that we support these women to find viable solutions in their own context. We don't need them to fall into desperate situations where they believe that a higher power is ordering them to do heinous things to save themselves. These aren't new challenges or experiences. We've seen them time and time again. And the solutions have been tried and tested also. Women are mobilizing to counter the impacts of extremism. Women's organizations directly engage with communities and expand awareness of religious uh, tolerance, human rights, and advocate for gender equality. And that's what we need to be doing. We don't need to try and convince these women that they're oppressed because they think that we're oppressed. And we don't have to tell them that their religion is wrong because we will come up against complete defensiveness. So to mitigate the spread of extremism, governments and international communities must focus their attention on providing resources to address underlying uh, economic and social malaise and recognize the inherent need that these women have for dignity and justice. Now, I'm a big fan of UN Security Resolution 1325 on women, peace and security. It stresses the importance of women's roles, equal participation, and full involvement in areas of conflict and conflict resolution. It urges states to increase female representation at all levels of the decision-making process uh, for the prevention, management, and resolution of conflict. So we need to be advocating for new roles for women in counterterrorism. There is a misconception that women aren't as involved in extremism or terrorist radicalization, and this is shaping our strategies and excluding women from the decision-making process and that has resulted in their underrepresentation in law enforcement and in security meetings, which is a huge problem. The resolution also says that gender equality and women's empowerment aren't important just because of social security. Gender equality should be promoted in its own right, and women should be empowered to participate in society fully regardless. The UN Secretary-General's Secretary uh, report on women's participation in peacebuilding works towards this goal. Now, it has seven main aims that it applies to these situations and says we'll resolve them. So the first is that women need to be fully engaged in all peace talks. 
The second is that post-conflict planning and processes need to involve women substantially and attention needs to specifically be given to gender issues. Number three is that adequate financing needs to be provided to address women's specific needs and advance women's empowerment. Number four is that state institutions need to become accessible to women. A woman should be able to walk into a government building without fear of being persecuted for being there. Number five is that there need to be quotas for governance. I love quotas, love them. Um, and you need 30% of any board to be represented by women before women's issues are even brought to the table. Number six is that security forces need to prevent and respond to women's rights violations immediately. And number seven is that women's engagement in employment creation schemes and community development programs is essential. Now here I am talking about women's employment programs when we're talking about ISIS. Seems a bit psychotic, I know, but it's important. <laughs> These ideas may also seem like an impossibility for women uh, living under groups like ISIS. But those groups that I mentioned earlier in other religious conflicts, that's exactly what was used to help them. Now we can look at the women in these situations and also see that they are empowering themselves. Yazidi women are mobilizing and fighting against ISIS and it seems like these men are absolutely terrified of these women. They actually believe if one of these women kills them, they won't go to heaven. So an excellent way to scare them. Now, when the Arab states carried out the first airstrikes against ISIS, we learned that the United Arab Emirates' first female fighter pilot, Major Maryam al-Mansouri, had actually led the charge. So these women know what they need to do. We just have to let them do it. When you look at the post-Cold War period, you can basically argue that there's some renewed interest after 9-11, probably, but it's always been there. Um, after 9-11, obviously, people wanted to understand radical Islam, um, wanted to understand why Muslims would you know, commit violent acts or violent extremism. And Muslim women, often, they want to analyze Muslim women. So you have this group of women who are so different, and there's also so many misconceptions about Muslim women. The fact that Muslim women are seen as they don't have agency, they're also seen as quite submissive. So these are some of the stereotypes. I actually spoke about this today with my class. Apparently this week is ethnic and gender politics in the Middle East, so I get to reiterate some of the things that I discussed earlier. So again, there are you know, misconceptions about, about Islam and also Muslim women in particular. And if you look at 2003, the US invasion of Iraq, of course, there are three reasons. I wouldn't say three reasons. There's so many reasons why America decided to invade Iraq. One reason, um, the most important probably, was weapons of mass destruction. Second, to spread democracy. And third, to, liber to liberate Muslim women or Iraqi women. So that's part of the rhetoric used to justify the war in Iraq. Always the misconceptions, but also treating Muslims in general, and also Muslim women as monolithic. So ignoring diversity, ignoring cultural practices, and also different schools and in Islam. 
whether we should be tackling uh, issues around women's empowerment differently in the Middle East and here. Absolutely. I don't even think it needs to be a difference between women's empowerment and how we help them here in the Middle East. It's how we help each individual group. So to give you guys an example, I spent some time working with the Department of Education years ago where they were saying, you know, all these young women in Western Sydney are doing much better than the boys in the high schools. And for some reason, none of them go on to study. We've been studying this for about 25 years and we can't figure out why. I said, well, they're getting married. They're like, well, no, 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 what? What do you mean they're getting married? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, I finished high school, all of my friends got married, and I was the weirdo who wanted to go to uni. So for someone to spend 25 years worth of public money to figure out something that they could have figured out if they just asked one of us <laughs> is crazy. <laughs> now, the problem is, I see it time and time again, you hear women talking about wanting to empower Muslim women. Now, they find it really hard to tell me that I'm oppressed because I wear a headscarf, but they try to do it in subtle ways. And so I tell them, so are you asking me to take my clothes off? Oh, no, 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 I'm just, I want to empower you. Great, empower me by letting me be me. And these women in the Middle East, they know what they want, they know what they're doing. Muslim women aren't stupid. Um, and, I mean, some of them are, sure, but for the most part, they're not. Um, and you have to remember, we make up 25% of the world's population. So if we're going to assume 25% of the world's population's women are stupid, then we have a problem. So, yeah, absolutely. We need to have a look at what these women need. We have a look at why they're disempowered. What are they hoping to achieve? Um, our Western ideals do not apply to those women. Even I couldn't go to Lebanon anymore and go and tell those women what to do. They'll tell me to do something not quite nice. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I've been approached by various government departments with really pretty fancy names and they'll come and say things like, well, Amni, you're a young Muslim. Why won't your people talk to us? You don't trust us. Like, well, you shouldn't be offended. We don't trust you. We don't trust our families. We don't trust the rest of the community. We don't trust the media. We don't even trust ourselves anymore. It's, um, it's an exhausting life to live. And I don't say that to be overdramatic. I say that because, you know, when you've got migrant parents who are very confused about what the social norms in the country are, um, who you're sitting at home with, who are telling you that it's us versus them, but you don't quite know whether you're us or them anymore. Um, when you have a government telling you that, you know, Australian society should be working with, you know, the Muslim community as though Muslims aren't part of Australian society. You know, when you have prime ministers going up on a stage with 10 Australian flags telling you how you and your people are problematic, um, it gets exhausting. Um, and so when you look at young disenfranchised Muslims, you've got to look at them as the same kinds of people you'd look at who would join gangs. So essentially you have a young kid who's grown up completely confused about who they are because their family's crazy, they go to school, usually to really bad schools. I went to one of the bottom five schools in the country, go my school, um, <laughs> where, teachers <don't, laughs> where teachers don't quite know what to do with these kids who then grow up and have no idea about any career paths. I actually didn't know government departments existed until I was very late in my teenage years. Actually, I'd like to say I'd finished uni by the time I'd figured out what a government department was. It's just, I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but it's just the norm of how you grow up. So if you have these kids who are completely confused about who they are, surrounded by governments who are saying, well, we're going to tell you how we're going to prevent you from being radicalised, of course they're eventually going to explode. I mean, being a woman, a Muslim woman online, you should see the kind of interesting stuff I get in my inbox from Muslim groups and from non-Muslim groups. So the pressure can get extremely suffocating. Now, I like solutions and that's how I like to work. What are the solutions? The solutions are we need to ignore the really loud, bigoted, stupid voices that are 
um, out there, and there's no point trying to fight them anymore. Reclaim Australia, I mean reclaim who? Forget about them. What we need to be doing is focusing our energy and our resources on young people who are feeling completely disconnected. Things as simple as getting these kids to learn about what they could do after high school. My options were find a husband or find a husband. So, <laughs> you know, not doing that is great for me, but I didn't know it was an option. I didn't know coming to Canberra was an option. Um, you know, helping them see that they are part of society, helping them see that it's okay to disagree with government policies without having to go back to where you came from, even though that might be your mother in most cases. So that's what needs to happen, make those kids feel like they belong here. I think it's important to promote, you know, Australian multiculturalism, despite the fact that, you know, we have grievances. I think Australian multiculturalism works. Um, it's a good model, and I think other countries are looking to Australia to see whether they can actually borrow from Australia, so it is a good thing. It's also important to acknowledge that media needs to be a bit more balanced. Um, in this country, sometimes it can be quite frustrating. The Paris attacks, for example, when it happened, was everywhere. And you condemned the Paris attacks, obviously, and the militants were... I will not even use the words, you know, uh, how to describe them. It's, uh, however, there were other attacks as well happening in Beirut, um, in your mother-in-law's district, if I'm street. not mistaken, street. Yes, and again, people, it was hardly reported, barely reported. So again, it demonstrates that whatever happens in Western countries, when you have casualties in Western countries, they matter but not when it happens in Muslim countries, when these um, attacks happen in Muslim countries. Muslims are victims as well, and they're fighting extremism, and yet we barely get the recognition. In fact, in Australia, if you look at the former prime minister, he boldly said that Muslim leaders need to condemn terrorism and need to condemn ISIS, and that's the rhetoric, and we see that even until today, and still people ask, we haven't seen any Muslims um, questioning ISIS or condemning ISIS. That needs to change in order for Muslims to feel that they're part of the Australian society. Also, I think the rhetoric, it's very important. The question is, is Islam to blame for violent extremism? That's the rhetoric. It's about Islam. And Muslims have to come out and justify that, oh, let's look at Quranic verses. There are so many ways to interpret the Quran. There are so many ways to look at one verse. Um, and you know, one verse can contain multiple meanings, for example. We are working so hard to justify why Islam has nothing to do with violent extremism. And the debate is about Islam. It's no longer about countering, uh, no longer about radical Islam, no longer about violent extremism, no longer about people who distort Islam as a religion, but it's about Islam as a religion. Islam as a religion is seen as problematic. That needs to change. And media, again, plays an important role. We are empowering ISIS because every day we hear about them. Every day we talk about ISIS. We see ISIS's interpretations of Islam everywhere. But we don't see moderate Muslims and the way they interpret the Quran, the way they look at the Quran, the number of Muslim clerics who have denounced ISIS and violent extremism. We don't hear about them because they're ignored. And I think in order for us to change that, we, I think they're, I mean, I'm not, I'm not someone who would 
I, as an academic, I state all the problems. I don't solve them. <laughs> uh, so I will leave it to policy That's makers, yes, absolutely, to, to solve these problems. But I, I absolutely agree with you. I'm going to tell you a very quick story because people get very confused because I don't sound like I was born in an ethnic community. If I actually sounded the way I was supposed to, it would be like, oh my God, you're so hectic, <laughs> right? I grew up in Western Sydney. I was surrounded by very ethnically diverse people. It's really crazy to say, but all the white people I knew were drug addicts. So that's what, like, seriously, that's what I grew up with. So when I went to uni in the city, on my first day, I had a culture shock from all the functioning white people. <laughs> and I was like, where did you all come from? And then I was terrified of all of them because, you know, the first white person that I spoke to who wasn't a drug addict said, where do you come from? And I said, oh, Liverpool. And they were like, oh, Liverpool. Do you guys have streetlights out there? And I was like, oh, God. These people are never going to like me. They're never going to accept me. And I spent most of my time at uni feeling that way. And then I came to Canberra and I was forced to, you know, make friends with these functioning white people. And suddenly I realised that all of the fear I had that had prevented me from feeling like I was allowed to contribute was all in my head. So there's a victim mentality sometimes. And I, and I don't want to say that to say that the, that feeling that young Muslims have is, is not uh, a feeling that they, you know are allowed to have. It's just that we have to acknowledge that it's absolutely there. There is a wall that is incredibly difficult to climb. And if on the other side there aren't people saying, you need to make the jump, and for me that's what it was. It was people saying, well, you, you know you don't actually have to deal with racism. You know you can tell people to go jump. Like, that's, that's an option for you. So we need to make young people, young Muslims especially, who were born here, who were born to really ethnically diverse families, feel like it's okay to be out there in society, feel like it's okay to wear a hijab and, and go to community events and not be seen as the outsider bless some white people's hearts they'll say things like oh I'm so sorry that all the racists say dumb things to you but I accept you and that's lovely and it's very sweet but it's also a great way to remind someone that you know regardless of what you do you're kind of a bit of an outsider so yeah we need to make young people young Muslims again feel like they belong here it can still be very difficult so I can talk based on my experience being in Australia it can be extremely difficult if you're a Muslim on campus, it's not an issue at all. Um, because people, you know, people here are very tolerant. It's not a big deal. But when you go out, you go outside, you walk with your child. Some people give you dirty looks because people don't understand. Uh, and it's very difficult as a mother for you to tell your child and explain to her, why do people call you terrorist? What is that? What does that mean? And children are very... Oh dear, the number of questions I get each day can be quite daunting. But it's very difficult as a mother to explain to your child. Um, and it's hard. I think, again, I will go back to media. It's very important. But also for Muslims to be able to go out and educate and explain to people. Some people would listen, others would always reject your explanations. They will look at some Quranic verses and would say, this is what Islam is all about. And no matter what you say, no matter how many ways you try to explain the you know, different interpretations or the diversity in Islam, it doesn't work. Um, but we're going to have to be very patient. I think it takes, it's, it's going to take a while before we're able to change the way people look at Islam, the way people look at Muslims. And as long as we have conflicts in the Middle East, we're talking about Western foreign policy and how paralyzing it can be in the Middle East, 
you will always have people who would misunderstand Islam. Um, and that is something that we all have to work together, Muslims and non-Muslims, to correct misconceptions and also to ensure that Islam is not portrayed as a religion that is violent. <coughs>